Hey, y'all. Uh, it's Cameron, he, him, his pronouns. Uh, good to see you all. So today our reading is from Mark chapter 14, 12 through 20. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him, one and one after another, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. Amen. Hey again, y'all. Still Jonah, still they, them, theirs. And um, excited to be with you talking today about Holy Thursday. We're in this series where we're going through each day of the last week of Jesus's life and trying to understand um, what each day meant. There was so much that happened, so much tightly packed in there that gets lost um, when we take out little pieces here and there but don't see the continuity of the entire story. We're moving through the last week as depicted in the Gospel of Mark. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the earliest, the shortest, the most direct, um, and others were sort of built from there. The reason we have four is because that there are four different interpretations that were preserved through history that were claimed to be holy and understood as powerful. And so we have these different takes on what Jesus was up to in this last week. We're focusing on Mark uh, for a number of reasons, but today we see some of the differences between how Mark depicts Thursday and how some of the other Gospels do. The biggest divergence is with John. So you may have heard Thursday of Holy Week called Maundy Thursday. Has anybody heard it called Maundy Thursday? Um, and feel free to comment if you've been to like Maundy Thursday services. Maybe they involved communion or foot washing. Last year at Zao, we had a foot washing service um, to celebrate Maundy Thursday. Maundy is a weird word, it means commandment. And, um, and it actually has to do with a commandment that was given to the disciples during the meal, uh, during that last meal with Jesus on that Thursday of Holy Week. But that commandment, which is beautiful, it's, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And that commandment, while beautiful, is only in the Gospel of John. So it's actually not going to be in our story today. So today, even though we think of it as Maundy Thursday, we're actually just going to call it Holy Thursday because that's how Mark um, depicts it. It's just a holy day through that week, um, but not that mandate. 
We may talk about Monday Thursday and the mandate and the foot washing at other times, but today I want to take you through Mark's depiction of this story. And let me assure you, it is still packed. Like, Thursday is, is so rich. There's so much going on here. And one of the reasons that I want to just walk you through it, I'm just going to tell you the story of Thursday. And we can interpret it together and find meaning together. But most of what I'm going to do today is just tell you what happened. Because we began on Sunday with Palm Sunday and the entrance, the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And then on Monday, the conflict between Jesus and Rome continued to come to a head. On Sunday, it had been the two processions, the Jesus' procession with the people coming in from one side of the city and Rome's procession with the army and the military might coming in from the other. But when they met in the middle, when Jesus met with the powers of the world in the middle, he began to have different kinds of demonstrated conflict. On Monday was when he flips over tables and challenges the authority of the temple. On Tuesday is when he gets into it with the theological and religious authorities of the day, challenging their ideas, telling them that their theology was harmful and that there was a better way, a truer way to believe and to be faithful. On Wednesday, last week, we got this incredible story juxtaposing Judas, who is starting to feel the pressure of that conflict, who is starting to buckle under it, starting to say, we're not safe anymore, this is going to end badly, and I'd rather have a hand in how it ends badly than let it happen to me, versus the woman, the unnamed woman, with the jar, the alabaster jar of ointment that she breaks lavishly over Jesus' head, pouring out her love, preparing for loss, going in with him, but pouring out her love and her affection, her roses for him for humanity, being fully alive. And so that's the conflict that brings us to Thursday. Now, according to Mark, Thursday is during Passover. It's the day of the Passover meal. And the Passover is the most important Jewish celebration in the calendar. It's the reason that everybody's in Jerusalem um, during this time, and the reason that the guards are so, the Roman guards are so on edge. Because the Jewish people are celebrating Passover, which is the remembering of when Jesus, or I'm sorry, when God rescues uh, the Jewish people uh, out of slavery in Egypt and into, uh, into the wilderness, into freedom that was still, still wilderness. But in this exodus, that's where that book gets its name, by the way, the exodus from Egypt, um, there is the slaughtering of a lamb and the blood of the lamb painted over the doorways of the Jewish people so that the destruction that is coming to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to those who are uh, unfaithful um, would pass over them. That's that name, Passover. And so they're celebrating the protection of God, of faithfulness, um, as they experience chaos and destruction in the world around them. And so during Passover, there, are, there is a meal. The meal is super important. And so Jesus is called to celebrate this meal with his people. It's part of his faith. But you may remember that the tensions that were mounting with Jesus were mounting throughout the week. And the religious authorities and the temple authorities really badly wanted to arrest Jesus. But they didn't for fear of the crowd. When Jesus was marching in with the palms, when Jesus was flipping over table, when Jesus was engaging in debates, 
all of this was in the presence of large crowds. And the authorities didn't want to arrest Jesus because they feared the reaction of the crowd who was with Jesus. So they had to wait for a private time and a private place. The Passover meal would have been an ideal time to come and arrest Jesus. And so we see Jesus do something very interesting. Jesus gets just two of his disciples, and he says, go, go into the city. You're going to find a dude with a jar of water. When you see that guy, follow him. He'll take you to a house. When you get to that house, talk to the owner of the house and ask him, where's the room upstairs that we're all going to eat at? And when he shows you that upper room, prepare our Passover meal there. And they did it. Now, this kind of calls back, actually, to the preparations for, um, for the Palm Sunday triumphal entrance. And you get this element of planning, that Jesus isn't just doing this haphazardly. Jesus has a plan. And sometimes we read this, and it's like, oh, how nice. These mystical things are coming together. Jesus is predicting a man will have water. Uh, but actually, it's more likely that Jesus has made arrangements. But the reason he's only sending two this time is because he needs those arrangements to be secret. Whereas on Palm Sunday, it was this big public demonstration that just needed a lot of moving parts to be coordinated. Now the coordination has to take in mind security. Jesus doesn't want everyone to know. Jesus doesn't even want all his disciples to know beforehand where this meal is to take place. On Wednesday's text, it says that Judas had already started to plot had already talked to the authorities and decided that he was going to betray Jesus and now was looking for opportunities. And the scripture text says that Jesus knows someone will betray him. Now, whether that's because Jesus is divine and knows how all this is going to play out or just because Jesus can read a room and knows when things are going south, we don't know. But either way, Jesus is now taking precautions Jesus is saying, this thing, this meal, it's actually so important that I need to protect it. I know I'm going to get betrayed, but I'm not going to let that happen before I have this final meal with my people. And so the two disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them, and they prepared a place in secret. This, this place is referred to sometimes as the upper room and it's interesting to think about right now. You see, the upper room represents what it means to gather in quiet, gather in secrecy, when it's no longer safe to gather in public. This was an important story for early Christians who were being persecuted, who had to meet literally sometimes underground, who had to have these kind of cloak and dagger systems, these symbols that they would, for instance, write on their doorways or mark in the sand in front of their homes to let each other know that they were safe and that theirs was the home that they were going to meet at. We see that Jesus finds a way to be with his people, to share a meal, to share a moment, even when it's dangerous. And though we are not persecuted now, despite some of the protestations of the internet, Christians are having to find creative and different ways to meet when it is no longer safe to do so in public. And so we can have some sort of kinship to Jesus in this moment. That while the pandemic is raging and while it is no longer safe to greet one another with a kiss of peace or a hug or a handshake, 
while we are no longer able to be in public celebrating, we have a long tradition of Christians finding a way, of believers, of followers, of Jesus' people being together under the strangest of circumstances. What do they do when they gather? They share a meal. Now, we know this meal was important because of Passover, but we also know that shared meals were hugely important to Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was distinctively meal-oriented. And so we have Jesus sharing this meal um, with his people. And when we remember this meal in particular in churches, we tend to do so with like a wafer and a little shot of wine. At best, you get a little piece of real bread. That's what we do at Zao when we're in person. A piece of real bread, but still a, a dip of wine. In Jesus' day, these were full-fledged meals. These were whole feasts even shared among people. And that's not, uh, that's not coincidence. Jesus was, was ministering among people who primarily their worries were about food and debt. That's why we have in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Those were the primary concerns of Jesus' audience and followers and community. Having a meal together meant meaningfully, materially providing for one another's needs and sharing in the sustenance that literally kept them alive. And so Jesus joins with his people who are hungry. He has real food, real material connection. They take the meal into their body and are literally nourished. But as they are sharing this particular meal in the upper room in secret on Thursday of Passover, Jesus says, one of you will betray me, one who's sitting with me right now. And you've got to imagine that that really like ground the dinner conversation to a halt. These were intimate spaces where people were were sharing uh, food and laughter and conversation. Surely everyone was really tense. They were meeting in secret after all, and they knew that things were amping up. But for Jesus to just put it out there, truly I tell you, which we know may have just been the word amen, amen, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. One by one, they were all like, well, not me. Surely not me. I'm not going to do that. And they all did that. And Jesus again just says, it's one of the 12 who's dipping bread into the bowl with me. Now, dipping bread into the bowl is a, a thing that we would have to kind of imagine. He was probably talking about, uh, they speculate, garum, a fish sauce. But it would have meant that they were just sharing a meal together and not in the kind of hyper-American way of like, if you reach over to eat some of my fries, I'm going to slap you on the hand. But in the Middle Eastern family-style way of they were sharing bread together, passing plates around, the least coronavirus uh, compliant way possible to share a meal, but very intimate. They were sharing food off of plates, eating from one hand to the next. And somebody that Jesus had that kind of contact with was going to betray him. So what did Jesus do in that moment? Did he, did he stand up and leave? Did he throw his betrayer out? Did he say, I'm not going to touch you? I'm not going to share food with you? Absolutely not. Jesus kept doing what Jesus does, which is lavishing love. Jesus kept offering the meal. 
and grieving. You see, Jesus has this amazing ability that we all need to learn from, this ability to hold truth and love in the same space, to call out injustice and evil and betrayal, and to share love in the same moment, to be able to say what you are doing is wrong, what you are doing is hurting me, and still find a way to be community, still offer oneself to the room. Now, there are limits to how far human beings can go with this. We all have to have boundaries of safety. But we should be inspired, called in even, when we see Jesus so ready to call out injustice and to say, you're hurting me, this is wrong, you will betray me, this is not okay, and also to brush hands, to break bread, to share a meal. Jesus doesn't stop there during this meal, even after he names that he will be betrayed by one present. He does something really fascinating, really powerful, so powerful, in fact, that we remember it every time we gather here. He takes some of the bread that they're eating, a loaf that has yet apparently been unbroken. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it to them. As he gives it to them, he says, take, this is my body. That's all he says about the bread. But it calls back to a really important story, the feeding of the 5,000. In the Gospel of Mark, there's some of the same exact language in the feeding of the 5,000, a miracle in which there were uh, 5,000 people gathered to listen to Jesus' teachings, and they had gotten hungry, and they didn't know how to feed one another. In that miracle, the disciples are like, hey, people have been listening to you for a really long time. Why don't you just like release them, let them go, let them go into town, grab a bite, do their thing. And Jesus is like, no. No, you feed them. And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? There's 5,000 people here. How do you expect us to feed them? And Jesus does something incredible and beautiful and powerful, so powerful that we continue to tell the story and remember. He follows that same pattern. I'll read you the scripture. It says, taking five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. We see the same pattern as in the Passover meal, where Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. That pattern of four, took, blessed, broke, gave, that holds real significance. That Jesus is taking what is there, offering it first back to God, breaking it, and offering it. And when we see this pattern in the feeding of the 5,000, it represents this beautiful, just distribution or redistribution. There are some who would argue that Jesus starts with five loaves and two fish and they miraculously multiply. That's the one we like because it's the one that kind of lets us off the hook, that we don't have to do anything because it's just Jesus' weird, you know, food magic. But I don't think that's actually what's happening here. I think what Jesus is saying when he says, 
You feed them. You feed the crowd. When Jesus says, let us gather what we have, let us offer it back to God, let us break it among ourselves and give to one another, we see something that is miraculous but doesn't necessarily defy the laws of physics. We see the gathering of the resources that were already there. We see the snacks stowed away in tote bags. We see that person who had uh, stopped at the market beforehand for the week. We see all of the folks who have what little they have to offer or what greatness they have to offer, pouring it out, offering it back to God, remembering that all things belong to the creator. And that the creator then breaks those things, showers them on us. This is a miracle. It is the miracle of the redistribution of all things, saying there is enough, there is more than enough, if only we would trust, trust in God, trust in one another, and not hoard. That we don't have to keep food more than we need, because if we all were to buy in, if we all were to trust one another and offer everything we had to all people, there is more than enough. And in fact, at the end of that miracle, there are baskets and baskets of extras. And so calling back to that miracle, Jesus says, take. I have lifted my body up to God. I have blessed it. I will break it. It's for you. There's more than enough. After that, he took a cup that they were drinking from, wine in this case, and he gave thanks again, and then he gave it to them. He said, drink from it, and they did. The text says all of them drank from it. And he explains, he says, this cup, this blood, is blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many Again, he's offering himself, saying, my body, my blood, they're for you. There's enough. They will need to be broken, though. He finishes by saying, truly, I tell you, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We could read that in any number of ways. For some, it's a prediction of Jesus' death, that he won't again taste wine until he has been resurrected and gone through enormous suffering. But Borg and Crossan, who wrote the last week, uh, which is some of the source material for this sermon series, they write that Jesus' last supper, as we know it, was to be the first supper of the future. That after this, drinking wine is participating in the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the anti-empire, the different way of being, that when there is enough of Jesus poured out, broken for all people, offered up from us to one another, that through that meal, through that sharing, through that trust, that redistribution, that radical act of knowing there is enough and sharing with one another, we are experiencing newness in the kingdom of God, a different way of being. It also, this blood, it calls back to that lamb that was painted over the door during the exodus, the blood that protects those from destruction, that in the midst of chaos, those who shelter under the blood of the lamb will be carried through, perhaps not, not easily, perhaps not with a whole lot of comfort, perhaps just with the, the packs on their back, but also 
with tambourines and singing and joy, as happened in the exodus into the desert. The language here, the separateness even of the body and blood, it points to a violent death. My body and my blood, not together, but this my body, this my blood. It's a violent separation. And it's an invitation for us to understand what is at stake here, that sometimes love calls us into pain and suffering. Not because that pain and suffering have value in and of themselves, but because love is risky. And no one knows that better than Jesus, and Jesus knows it so well in this moment. When he is offering the fullness of himself, pouring out love to the people around him, knowing that at least one in the room won't be able to receive it. And that one will receive it so badly that it will end in Jesus' arrest, torture, and death. And yet Jesus doesn't say, here is my blood and my body. I've handled it. Don't worry about it. Jesus says, take and eat. Participate in this with me. Take my body into yours. Take my blood. It's poured out for you. Participate with me in the breaking, the blessing, the pouring out. This is part of what salvation means for us. Not passive acceptance, but invitation to be a part of that and to face some of the cross with Jesus. That's why he says, take up your cross, follow me. But we are to follow him into new life, into resurrection, knowing that the journey may get really ugly. At the end, because it's Passover, they sang together. The scripture says they sang a hymn. And after the hymn, After the meal, after the singing, after all of that had concluded, they went to the Mount of Olives. I'm telling you, a lot happens on Thursday. So they go to the Mount of Olives. We don't know what Judas is up to at this moment. This may have been when Judas bounces. But they all know that they're going to the garden. And so Jesus says to them, you'll all become deserters. And everybody freaks out. They're like, No. Peter especially is like, not me. Like, everybody else might betray you, but not me. And Jesus says to Peter directly, truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter loses it. He's like, even though I'm gonna, I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the scripture says all of them said the same. All of these protestations, I would never, I would never, I would never. Can you imagine the grief of Jesus knowing that those closest to him will not be faithful? Knowing that they don't even get it themselves, that they think they're going to be faithful, but that when they're actually put against the reality of what they face, they will crumble. It's a painful moment for Jesus. So he asks them, sit here while I pray. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up deeper into the garden Scripture says that at this point, Jesus began to be distressed and agitated and said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. I think we often imagine Jesus as so calm and collected. There's the scripture that says Jesus wept. But I think a lot of us imagine it to be like weeping with dignity. What does it mean for Jesus to be distressed and agitated? When Jesus wept, did he stoically have tears uh, streaming down his face as we see in some of the kind of 
medieval and Renaissance art? Or did Jesus ugly cry over Jerusalem? What was Jesus like in the garden that night? According to Mark, Jesus was having a hard time. And I think that that gives us a different kind of savior. One who is vulnerable. One who allows his distress to be known to those closest to him. One who asks for what he needs. Stay here. Stay awake while I pray. We imagine that leaders or messiahs or even just good Christians sometimes are supposed to have this kind of calm over them. But what if one of the best ways to care for one another, what if the way to lead or to be faithful is to allow a fullness of experience, including our own grief and distress? If God is willing to ugly cry over Jerusalem in front of us, why do we hide our distress from one another or even God? We see Jesus, as always, modeling faithfulness in this moment, showing his distress and agitation, asking his loved ones to be with him, and grieving when they fail. The text says that Jesus threw himself on the ground and prayed that the hour would pass from him. Abba, Father, he says, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. What does it mean to say yes, even when we really don't want to? To agree to suffering, not because suffering itself matters, but because loving people comes with betrayal and pain and heartbreak and loss. So often we would rather avoid that pain altogether, even if it means turning away from love. And we see God contend with this in God's own self in the garden. Do I want this? Honestly, no. If there is another way, I will take that other way. And also, let me go in the way of love, even if it feels unbearably painful. Jesus trusts in God, who is love. Jesus trusts that love is the way. Jesus asks because he must ask, because he longs to ask for another way, a less painful way, a way without torture and death and betrayal. But Jesus knows that whatever the way of love is, is the way. And so Jesus, the way, the way of love, says, yes, I will continue to pour myself out over my people, even if it means being broken. And then he goes back, and his disciples are sleeping. He says, Simon, and that's what gets me. He calls Peter Simon. Simon was his name when Jesus met him, and Jesus gave him a new name, Peter. Now, I don't know if that's a nickname or just a recasting of who Simon Peter is. Peter means the rock, the, the steady one. And Jesus says at some point, you're going to be the rock on which my church is built. But Jesus isn't feeling that way about Peter right now. So he's like, Simon! It's like getting middle named by Jesus. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake for one hour? And you hear and feel the disappointment in Jesus. Again, Jesus doesn't stop loving Peter in this moment. And in fact, Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. He says, stay here, stay awake. I'm going to pray. And he comes back and they're sleeping again. 
The text says they didn't know what to say to him. Jesus, when he talks to them about this, had said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knows the struggle they're up against. He still asks asks for love, asks for their vigilance, but continues to love them when they are unable. So he goes back and prays and comes a third time. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? He says, enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Because at that moment, Judas arrives. But a crowd, a crowd sent by uh, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and this crowd has swords and clubs. Judas comes and approaches him and gives Jesus a kiss, calls him teacher in a moment of really, really cruel affection. And so they knew that the one that Judas had kissed was Jesus. Now you may be wondering why they needed a sign. Um, Jesus seems pretty notorious at this point, and certainly the chief scribes, or the chief priests, the scribes, and elders who wanted him dead would have known who he was. But this just shows that they actually weren't there to do their own dirty work. They had sent the soldiers of the temple to do it instead. Soldiers who didn't really even know necessarily who Jesus was. And so Judas identifies Jesus for them, greets him with a kiss. In the scuffle that ensues, one of Jesus' people strikes out with a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the mob. The text lets us know that that person is a slave of the high priest. And I think one of the reasons that's so important is to understand how the executors of injustice are sometimes really removed from the architects of it. That these folks are just following orders and they're coming after Jesus. They're the the slaves, the servants, the underlings of those folks who are orchestrating this. And yet they participate and it is their hands that end up on the Holy One. And how do Jesus' people react? with violence and chaos. They come at them with a sword. They cut off ears. In other accounts of this story, Jesus gives speeches and um, makes a whole demonstration, including saying those who live by the sword will die by it and rebuking uh, his own followers, even going so far as to heal the cut ear of the slave. But in Mark's gospel, it all goes a little faster a little more chaotic. He says, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I was a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And the text says, All of them deserted him and fled. His people, frightened by the mob, after lashing out in violence, deserted him. And so we see our Jesus who keeps saying yes to love even as it hurts, who keeps pouring out love, go off with the mob who has come for him. They take him to an assembly of chief priests, elders, and scribes. They're looking for testimony, a reason to, uh, to execute him now that they've arrested him, but they find none. Scripture says that there are false testimonies abounding, but they all contradict each other. And so they go to Jesus directly, and they say, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus, always clever even unto death, says, I am. 
Now, I am isn't just Jesus being headstrong. That's Jesus quoting the name of God. The name of God is I am, Yahweh, which means I am or I am that I am. I am what I am. I am what I become. And so Jesus doesn't only answer in the affirmative. He answers with the very name of God. So basically, the authorities, the religious authorities who would view all of this as blasphemous and enough reason to execute him say, so are you really God? And Jesus says, Yahweh, I am. I am what I am. I am the name of God. He goes on to quote scripture at them and say, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So the authorities at that point are like, why do we even need witnesses? This is blasphemy. And so they officially condemn him as deserving death. All of this taking place in the middle of the night. Again, for fear of the crowds, for fear of the people who would defend Jesus, they're doing this covertly in the middle of the night on Thursday. A small tribunal gathered to say, this man, he is who threatens us. We will put him to death. And outside, there's Peter. Jesus has just been put on trial condemned to death, and they've begun to beat him. And outside, Peter follows at a distance. Peter, so earnest, so sweet, so wrong so often. He sits by the fire, and someone says, you with Jesus? And he says, no, 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 not me. You must have me mistaken. And he kind of goes towards the forecourt. He, he gets a little more distance from what's happening. And as he does so, the cock crows. He goes outside. And a servant girl says about him, kind of shouts out, this is one of them. And he's like, no, 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 not me, not me. And a crowd gathers and says, surely it's you. You're Galilean. And he began to curse, the scripture says, swore an oath saying, I do not know this man you are talking about. And the cock crowed a second time. And in that moment, scripture says, Peter remembered and he broke down and wept. And that is where Thursday ends for us. Peter wept because his love had faltered. Peter wept because his own efforts to keep himself safe made him betray his own promise. Now, Jesus knew this would happen. Jesus told him this would happen. And we saw that Jesus didn't cast him out. Jesus didn't turn him away. Jesus didn't, uh, didn't tell him he was unworthy of love. We see Peter failing over and over again, not understanding, never understanding the teachings, always um, questioning in the wrong way, um, his curiosity always betraying some of his uh, deeper assumptions. We see him earnestly, though, asking, and Jesus always praises him for that. The rock, the rock on which the church is built is this faltering, fumbling, betraying, earnest man. The one who wants so badly to love and gets it so wrong so often. But this is the one known by Jesus. And Jesus never turns Peter away. We know that Jesus' body and blood was broken and poured out for many. 
but we also know that Jesus would have done it for any one of us. And so in this moment, I want you to imagine that Jesus is going through all of this just for Peter. That Jesus is declaring love, declaring salvation, pouring himself out just for love of this one Simon Peter. Peter who wants so badly to love, but does it so wrong so often. Jesus is still facing death. And while that death has nothing, um, the violence in it is, is not the point. The willingness of Jesus to continue to pursue Peter in love is, even against pain and death, even as Peter repeatedly falters and betrays. Now I want you to shift and imagine that Jesus, who would do this for any one of us, is doing it for Judas. Judas, who did betray him to the authority. Judas, who kissed him on the cheek and called him teacher in order that he could be taken by a mob with swords and clubs, put on trial, beaten and tortured to death. Jesus would have faced the cross only for Judas to show love, to be close, to prove to Judas there is life beyond death, there is life beyond betrayal, there is love beyond that hurt. Jesus can redeem all things. And scripture tells us that in the end, every knee will bow and voice will raise in song. And I trust that Jesus will redeem all things, even Judas. And now I want you to shift and imagine that Jesus, who would have done this for any one of us, did it for you? What are the moments that you have been connected to Jesus, that you have brought your questions, your worries, your wonderings? What have been the moments of devotion where you shared a meal, where you had that closeness? What have been the moments where you got it utter utterly wrong? What have been the moments when you thought you were getting it right? And then you hear the cock crow and you weep, realizing once again that though your spirit was willing, you were weak and you were unable. Jesus faced all of this to be close to you. Jesus would have done it if only for you. Jesus lavishes love on us in the way that the woman breaks the jar over his head. He pours it out, pours it out so much that it is his, lo his love is his blood, which flows. His body is broken. And what Jesus tells us by calling back to the feeding of the 5,000 is that that is enough. That is more than enough to bring us through death and into resurrection. That the love of God, which is shared among us, doesn't need to be hoarded, doesn't need to be hidden, but actually needs to be offered. That when we pour out to one another, we seemingly multiply the love of God. And it nourishes us and brings us through our aching pains of hunger. It brings us through the pain of the cross and into life. Will you pray with me? God of love, we thank you for the ways that you showed love over and over. We thank you for the ways that you show love without discrimination. That even when we fail, even when we mess up, 
that you still love us, that you love us without question, that you love us knowing our flaws, that you love us through that into life, even when we would betray you into death. God, may we learn from you how to love one another in complexity, how to hold the truth, how to speak it relentlessly, and also hold one another in love. God, help us to see your love made manifest in the world around us, what it means for you to love us even through death and into newness of life. We pray all of this in the name of the one who loved us first, that we might receive that love and pour it back out, multiply it, that all may be fed. Hold this moment, hold this moment in prayer and contemplation and receive the spirit of God in a new way. We've come to the time in the service called offering, where having received from God and from one another, we offer ourselves back. I want to invite you to offer yourself in creative ways. One of the ways that we need offering for, um, for one another, for the sustenance of our community, is financial. Uh, if you are a member of this community, consider um, giving financially. You can do so at zaomke.org give. You can give of yourself uh, in that way, in that loaves and fishes sense. If you feel like what you have isn't enough to offer, know that there is enough among us to sustain and nourish and grow this community. If only we would trust in one another and give what we have. There are other ways to offer yourself. You can fill out those prayer cards um, and let us know how we can be in prayer for you. You can offer up your prayers for the community. You can offer yourself during this time of pandemic by caring for one another and being present to one another. And as always, know that your presence here right now is an offering and a gift to God and to the community. Take this time to offer. And now, I would like to leave you all with a blessing. May the God who pours herself out in many and various ways pour out her love on you. May you, a child of God, receive the nourishment of the one who provides. And may we as a body love through death into life. Amen. Love y'all. 
See you tomorrow at 6.30.